From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The veil is thin, and it can be lifted for any one of us at any time. And it's for us to be paying attention and noticing when that happens and understanding that is a real gift that we're given. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Marie Lore. She's an author and leader of writing groups, and she has earned two master's degrees in theology, one from Episcopal Divinity School and the second an advanced degree from Boston University School of Theology. She currently facilitates small writing groups focused on creating spiritual autobiographies through Osher for Lifelong Learning at the University of North Florida and the University of Southern Maine. She also began her own writer's group, The River Writers, now in their fifth year. Today we're talking about her recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. Marie Lore, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me, David. I would like to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You are standing at the gates of the British Museum and they are locked. And you turn from there and you see a, a, a pair of women walking down the street and you run after them and you say, I'd like to join you this morning. And as a way of getting into our conversation, I would love to find out what you were hoping to do at that moment and how your plans changed. Oh, thank you. That's a fantastic place to start, actually, because it's pretty much one of my favorite parts of the story, because it was the serendipity that happened. And for me, understanding how things fit together that we don't see that are unforeseen is the serendipity of life. So that was the moment where I became a true pilgrim on my pilgrimage. So these two women and I had a moment on the street corner a few minutes earlier from that moment when I got to the library. And they were standing there wondering their directions, and they were talking to each other and speaking as friends do. And I overheard this little piece of their conversation that nobody asks for directions here in London, but I know it's near the British Library. So I said, well, if you're looking for the British Library, it's down here. And they said... Well, we're not actually going to the British Library. We're going to the Friends Quaker Meeting House. The Friends Quaker Meeting House was someplace I wanted to know where it was and wanted at some point in the journey to have a chance to visit. So we went across the street talking. I said, I would love to join you there this morning, but I have a train ticket to Norwich at noontime, and so I can't do that. And they said, going to Norwich? And I said, yes. They said, we were just talking about Julian of Norwich. And the whole thing just came right together in that moment. 
So I stayed in my head with my own plan to continue on my day to get to the library first and then go to the train. But then the doors to the library were locked. And in that moment, my first thought was, oh, I have time to get a cappuccino. The second thought was, no, let's go find those two women. So I ran after them and we spent a good 15 minutes at least sitting together having tea talking as if we knew each other for our whole lives. As this story unfolds in your book, Return from Exile, you are there with them having tea, but it's at the Quaker Friends Meeting House there in London, and they are there for a charismatic mass. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that was. But the thing that really struck me is that at that charismatic mass, they were handing out little keepsakes. And one of the keepsakes that you get is a rubber wristband. And I think I really want to ask you, what did that rubber wristband say? The rubber wristband, which was the entrance to the actual event that was going to happen there, the charismatic mass, said, you will receive power. And when you got that, and as you were reflecting on it after you you left the charismatic mass and went back about your day getting ready to go on this trip to Norwich, that just seemed uncanny to me, like almost like a little nudge from the Spirit opening something up for you about what to expect from the whole trip. But that was my interpretation from reading your book, Return from Exile. I'm wondering what you thought about and how you interpreted it in that particular moment. Yeah, that's really interesting because nobody has actually asked me about that. And and I think it is important. So I still have this rubber band. It sits on my writing table and I often, you know, my eye often catches it. At the time that it was handed to me as the sort of the thing to wear to get inside, when I read those words, I had this moment of this is one of those charismatic kind of messages that they want me to take in. And I almost pushed them aside somewhere in some kind of dismissive way. But then when I was sitting in the library later that day and it caught my attention, that's when it hit me, this is a real message. And this is a real pilgrim message. And so to think about it in that way. And it didn't really mean anything to me in that very moment. But as time went on, because I I wore it for the entire trip, It caught my attention in different moments. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Marie Lore, and she is an author and theologian, and we're talking about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. David, I'm going to tell you that the way I say St. Augustine in this case is St. Augustine. Aha. And the reason that I start to say it that way is because that is the city that I live in, St. Augustine. So I apologize. No, that's fine. Revelations from an anchoress in St. Augustine. I will make sure to say it the correct way from now on. Too much theology school in my in my own case. <laughs> I understand. I've had to correct several people on this and it's not a mistake, really. It's just the fact that here in St. Augustine, it is said as St. Augustine. Well, thank you for that correction. I'd like to linger for a moment on this image that I have of a pilgrim giving someone directions. I just am delighted by that particular thing because <laughs> you you 
<laughs> London was not a known city to you. It just it was this little moment where you overheard two people asking for something that you happened to know about. But I really I'd love to think with you for a moment about what we can take theologically, maybe or maybe philosophically from the idea of the spirit placing you at a point where you on your own pilgrim journey and I should stress at that moment, you maybe were not even admitting to yourself that it was a pilgrim journey, but to put you in that place where you could be uh, a landmark, a wayfinder for others who were on a journey. I'd love to think with you about that. What do you think about that? I've thought about it a lot. It's a fantastic thing to sort of delve into with regard to the entire pilgrimage, but also the entire story, because I've thought about this often. So my idea that morning, where before I met these women was to go straight to the British Library and to then go back to the train station and, and take off from there. As I was walking down the street, I had a moment where I thought to myself, well, why don't I just get my train ticket now? So I went across the street that way instead of the other way and ended up in this huge train station if you've ever been to St. Pancras station it's huge I got my ticket and I walked out and unbeknownst to me I could have gone out a different door of that train station and ended up right in the British Library's location but I didn't know this because I'm the pilgrim and so I went back I retraced my own steps and I ended up on that street corner well what I thought about is as I was buying my ticket these women were coming in on a train themselves from their little towns, as they described it to me. They had been on the train for two hours that morning, and they weren't accustomed to being in London themselves. So they were the people from England, but they were unfamiliar with the lay of the land as much as I was. But I had been to the library the day before, so I knew where I was going, and I guess I just couldn't resist when I heard them say, nobody asked for directions here in London. So I thought, well, I'll just tell them <laughs> what I know. So there was a lot that brought us together. Those small decisions in the morning to go in one direction and not go out the door where I could have easily accessed the library. All of that, to me, sort of plays into the idea of serendipity and that we were meant to meet them. Well, and... What strikes me about this, so there are several philosophers that have talked about it. The one that comes to mind is Michel de Certeau, but I know that there were others in the 1960s that wrote about this as well. The art of aimless walking, of letting the city teach you, or being open to the surprise of a known landscape. Because London is a place with maps, it's well built, it's an understood terrain, but it wasn't understood very much to you or to these two women. And you were allowing this moment to surprise all three of you. I think that many of us don't often allow ourselves to be surprised in that way. So I know from reading your book, Return from Exile, that there were a lot of reasons why you were in that particular place and that you were more open, perhaps, to surprise than maybe you would have been at other points in your journey. But talk to me a little bit about how surprise factors into that moment and maybe the wider scope of what we're talking about in your book, Return to Exile. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the wandering piece. I took a course actually called Wandering, if you can believe it. And I took it at the very end of getting to my degree because it looked like the perfect fluff course for me to hurry up and finish and go. 
on my way. It turned out to be a fantastic experience because the whole point of it was just what you're describing, to wander aimlessly, don't plan where you're going, just go for half an hour or whatever, go back home, write some thoughts about that and see what happens. And I think when I put myself in situations like that's when the most interesting things do happen. And I wouldn't say that I intentionally set out. I definitely knew where I was headed that morning or thought I did because I was going to go to the library. But I was open to the idea that meeting these two people had an, a significant meaning to me. And I didn't know, of course, what that would be. And um, I was just enjoying the moment, as it said, and not trying to control it in any way, just taking that experience for what it was. And it evolved into something that really permeated the entire story after that for me and continues to, I should say. So we are still in touch. And there's a very good chance that we will see one another again, I'm sure, when we can travel freely. And I suspect that there's going to be some somewhat of a reunion. But if I may just tell you one thing that they've told me, I got a wonderful email message on Easter morning, last Easter morning, from one of the women. She said that the two of them on Easter, because the churches were closed during the pandemic, decided that they would make their own little pilgrimage around their villages. And they took Julian of Norwich's book with them, and they stopped at different churches, and they read from the book. And she said, and then our last stop at this beautiful churchyard, when we sat to drink our tea, brought you to mind, and we talked about you and our meeting. And that just touched me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and if I may, so as we're moving towards our first break, there's one other piece of this story as we're kind of setting the table for the conversation that is to come that really strikes me as we're talking about this serendipitous moment outside the train station where the gates of the British Library are locked and you change your plans. And that is that moment shouldn't have even happened at all because you were actually supposed to make this trip to England a year before. So it strikes me in looking at your book that it wasn't just that your path had been rearranged to meet these two women that morning, but it's almost like paths had been rearranged for months in advance in order to make this meeting happen. Now, when I say that and the words come out of my mouth, it sounds a little, my wife would say it sounds a little woo woo, <laughs> but I'm wondering how it sounds to you. Like when I say that, does that hit and you say, oh no, it was just coincidence? Or do you actually think of it in terms of the pieces being moved that far in advance? Definitely agree with the pieces were moved. And of course, I didn't know why that should be. And to take you back to the original moment when the whole pilgrimage fell apart the first time, I was standing in the airport. My boarding pass had been scanned. And the flight attendant came down from the plane and said, put her hand up in front of my face and said, stop, we're not boarding any more passengers. And I said, what's going on? And she said, Logan Airport in Boston, where I had to fly to connect, has been closed for tornadoes. Now, I'm originally from that area, and tornadoes are not a common thing at 
off. So that whole thing struck me right from the start as what is this message? And I knew almost within 25 minutes of sitting in the terminal waiting to see what was going to happen that I was not going to make the pilgrimage at that time. And so I did have to wait for some later time, which turned out to be a whole year. And then everything fell into place that time, and including, I would agree with you, meeting these people and all the other things that happened along the way. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Marie Lore. She's an author and theologian, and we're talking about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Marie Lore. She's an author and leader of writing groups and has been trained with master's degrees in theology from Episcopal Divinity School and an advanced degree from Boston University School of Theology. We're talking today about her recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. In the first part of our conversation, we were talking about pilgrims and pilgrim journeys, and that was a ruling metaphor, you know, wandering, looking for directions, trying to find the way and being open to surprise. But one of the central figures that you return to again and again in your book, Return from Exile, is Julian of Norwich, and she's the opposite of a pilgrim. Because a pilgrim wanders, and Julian of Norwich was an anchoress. And I, I wonder if you could, as a way of introducing to my listeners who maybe don't know Julian of Norwich very much, or maybe have only heard a piece or two about her story, what can you tell us about Julian of Norwich, first of all, and then what does it mean that, to say that she was an anchoress? Uh, yeah, that needs to be explained, because she's um, a figure from another time, and we don't encounter anchoresses anymore. So Julia of Norwich lived in the 14th century. She's now considered to be a mystic. But at the time, she was a woman who lived in this small village during the time of the Black Death Plague, which also became a parallel with my story once the pandemic descended upon the world. But apart from that, she had a near-death experience at the age of 30 years old. And in that near-death experience, she had visions. And she was on her deathbed for three days. The priest was called by her mother, who was standing by her side, as her, as Julian says, waiting to close her eyes. So this was a very dramatic moment in their lives as mother and daughter, but also Julian herself and everyone around her expected she would die. So these visions are her near-death experience, and they're visions of Jesus Christ on the cross and the Passion, and it's very vivid and graphic in her story. And at first, when she recovered, 
she knew she had to do something about these visions because she was afraid she would forget them. So one story says that she um, met up with a Franciscan priest, and we have to remember the time frame here was 14th century. Women did not have any role whatsoever in the church. And so she was pretty much doing this on the sly with this Franciscan priest who wanted to help her to write these visions down. So she did so, and she has a short text of that called Showings. That's what's now referred to as the short text. So that was it for 20 years. But when she was 50 years old, she made a choice to become an anchoress. So an anchoress is someone who lives out the rest of their lives within a cell that's attached to a church and there is no exit. Once you're in there, as is said, you're, quote, dead to the world. She's given last rites. She's escorted into the anchorage, and there she'll stay for the rest of her life. During that time, and the reason she wanted to enclose herself, go into exile, self and post-exile, was so that she could write at length about this experience of having these visions. And so that took up the rest of her time, as far as we know, other than the fact that she was also considered to be a spiritual director, what we would call a spiritual director today, because there was a third window in the anchorage. There were three windows. One looks into the church. One is for the person who brings food and everything to her. The third window looks out into the village, onto the street. And people come to this window to talk with her and get counsel about all things spiritual in their lives. So she's very much a part of the village, even though she lives completely alone and separate from the village. And the other thing I like to think about with regard to Julian is she's the quintessential insider outsider of the church because she's attached to the church. She never goes into the church again. And at the time that she's living there, she's writing about things that are important for people to know about God in the 14th century. People believed that God was an angry, punishing God, and the church was definitely promoting that idea, shall we say. And during the Black Death Plague especially, people were told that they were being punished for their sins. And she was saying, God is a God of love. God is not punishing us. God is with us. And her message was completely different from what people were hearing from the church. And so I look at her as this person who sat right there in the middle of things. She was alone in her anchorage. She's attached to the church. She doesn't have a voice from the church because she's a woman. And she's delivering this hopeful message to the village at large. I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly and that my listeners hear you correctly. So the wider church is giving a message at this time in the 14th century. God is watching and judging you and all of the horror that you see around you in the Black Death, that's all punishment from God. And in the face of that, and this is why I want my listeners to really hear this, I just I've turned now to the epigraph at the beginning of your book. You quote Julian of Norwich saying, "Do you want to know what your Lord meant? Know well that love was what he meant. Who showed you this? Love. What did he show? 
love. Why did he show it to you? For love. I think that oftentimes we live in a world of Hallmark cards where love is thrown around like salt on a dish. But what I'm hearing you saying is that this clarion call, this ringing bell of love was so different from the other messages that they were getting at the time. Now, those are my words, not yours. But am I hearing correctly the, the kind of shape of the atmosphere that you're describing? I would say that's as close a description as I would put into my own words. And the reason that I chose that as the epigraph for the book was because Julian herself questioned why she would be the one to have received such a message. She calls herself a lowly woman, an unlettered woman. And there's dispute about the level of her education because she became the first woman to have a book published in the English language. So there's question about how did this happen, that she should know how to write in English and so forth, but that's a subject for another day. So Julian has the time to pursue what these revelations could possibly have meant and why they were shown to her. And that epigraph is actually the final revelation or vision that she receives at the what we think is close to the end of her life because she's still asking that question. She's written 85 chapters at this point, explaining each one of the visions in detail and what the message was from God. And when she gets to the end, 15 years goes by between the time she's finished writing and the question is still unanswered in her mind. And one day the revelation comes, which is that epigraph. It was all for love. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Marie Lore. She's an author and theologian, and we're talking about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchorist in St. Augustine. Well, one of the things that I really want to stress to my listeners is we're talking about Julian of Norwich, and you said just a moment ago, we're, we think that this happened towards the end of her life. One of the things that I discovered in your book, Return from Exile, that I didn't know was that we actually have very little in terms of facts about Julian of Norwich. We don't know exactly when she died, and this blew my mind. We don't even really know her name. We call her Julian of Norwich, but we don't know if that was the name that she was born with or how her identity existed at all prior to being walled away in the anchorage. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what we don't know about Julian of Norwich? Yeah, that's almost the first thing that everybody says when Julian's name comes up, Julian of Norwich. We don't know very much about Julian. After exploring Julian in the way that I have all of her, her, her writing, listening to audio versions of her book, doing my own research at the British Library, sitting with her manuscripts, and then going to her anchorage, which is a, a reconstructed anchorage, but nonetheless, sitting in the place where she would have been, attached to this very small church called St. Julian's, which is how the name comes about. I think to myself, we know a lot about this woman. We know everything about this woman that she wanted us to know about her. And she delivered that message to us in this beautiful writing of revelations of divine love, which we now call it revelations of divine love because translations, she called it a revelation of love. And she speaks only about the things that she values, I believe, 
to be the messages that she received because of her deathbed experience. And that's what she wants us to know about her. And there's a lot of speculation about was she ever married? Did she have a family of her own? Was she once in a convent and educated by some nuns? And the questions go on and on. Those questions haven't been answered, to my knowledge, by anybody, any scholars who have researched her much more deeply than I have. And it's just accepted that Julian of Norwich is that once-in-a-lifetime woman who lived her life according to this divine intervention. Now, you described her earlier as a mystic, and I, I love the way that you said that you said she was a mystic, but at the time she was also a woman which I love the way that you sort of paired that out. But another thing that I learned from your book, Return from Exile, is that I had always thought that she was canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church. And what I come to understand is that she's actually not a saint in that way, although she is recognized by the Catholic Church in some ways. So I guess what I'm wanting to ask is, how do the various Christian traditions receive her message and her mysticism? How is she thought of by various strands of Christianity? Yeah, the two strands that really recognize her are both the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church here in the United States. They each have a feast day for her within three days of one another. And the reason for that is the the Catholic Church certainly, well, they did not uh, make her a saint, but they definitely hold her up as a mystic and as a woman who what did have these revelations. And the Anglican Church claims her as their own because she's there in England, was there in England. And they share her, which is very unusual if you think about it. And so she's crossed over that bridge as well. So not only did she become the insider outsider of the church itself during the time and participate in village life, but not live in the village per se. She's now also 700 years later, faded by two of the major Christian mainline traditions. Now, when we have been talking about her in this conversation, we've used this word mystic. I'm interested in how you understand that word. When you say that Julian was a mystic, what does that mean particularly to you? Yeah, I think when I think of the mystic, and it's not just Julian, I mean, loads of other people, certainly, the mystical is that thing that's not seen. And she understands that she's been allowed to see something that most of us don't get to see. But I would also say that as somebody who lives serendipitously or tries to live serendipitously, that there's something there for all of us to understand. And it's that the veil is thin and it can be lifted for any one of us at any time. And it's for us to be paying attention and noticing when that happens and understanding that is a real gift that we're given. And so I don't hold her as a mystic as separate and apart from all the rest, you know, of society. I think I would say all the rest of society isn't paying attention to what is mystical. 
And we've talked about this at other points in the conversation. We used in the first segment this idea of you were a pilgrim there in London, and yet you were able to give directions because of this serendipity to some others who were visiting London at that particular moment. It strikes me that third window that you mentioned in the anchorage, where the villagers could come and ask this woman for guidance and for spiritual direction. It amazes me that in both of these cases, a pilgrim is not necessarily connected to the world that that they're in, the geography that they're in. They don't know it in a way that they should be able to give directions, and yet we've established that there are times where the Spirit opens and you can give directions. By a curious coincidence, an anchoress who is only in one place and only knows the four walls of her cell probably shouldn't be able to give directions either, and yet here the villagers are coming and they're getting spiritual counsel from her. What do you think that experience was like? How can someone who has only about 144 square feet of life, how can they actually give directions to anyone else about what it means to live in the world? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I wish I knew how she did that. I think that she was very gifted. I think that her ability to talk about her faith with everybody was something that they valued. And it's been noted in some other books written that she was somebody that was very well loved and her spiritual direction was actually very helpful and meaningful to them. So we have records of that, that she was effective in that way. But how could she actually do that? I think she lived so close to God that whatever she allowed to be said, she knew wasn't really her own words that she probably assumed. And I would say rightfully so, that she was able to be that intermediary. Now, you mentioned in your book, Return from Exile, that you made this pilgrimage to Norwich in order to visit that cathedral and to see the cell where the rebuilt cell where she lived. And you even were able on, I believe it was her feast day, to have a a worship service there in that cell, along with others who had come for that purpose. Can you describe for us what that was like? First of all, what did it look like? How big was it? What was the impression that you got from it? And then I'd love to hear more about that experience of kind of worshiping in that space. Yeah, that it was really powerful. First of all, it's small as, as you would expect, but it wasn't as small as I expected. So in my mind's eye, before I went, I pictured something more like a bathroom size space, like not much moving around space, but it was more like a small room. I sat there for a while by myself and I thought, this is like a little studio apartment. There's not a lot, but there's enough. And it was comfortable enough in that way. I'm sure it wasn't that comfortable in the 14th century without heat, without light. So I thought about that a lot while I was sitting there. I don't think I would want to be here in the 14th century. And the whole place, of course, is more like a shrine now than an actual, what I would guess would be her living quarters. So there's an altar. But there's also this, it's not actually the tomb where she's buried, but there's a tomb-like edifice, marble with a big crucifix over it. And on this tomb-like edifice is her name and her dates. And then the words, thou art enough for me, as a quote. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But the worship experience was very reminiscent to me. First of all, I'll just say I was not there on the feast day. I thought about going on the feast days, but I decided that would be a little too 
much for a pilgrim, <laughs> for, for the kind of pilgrimage I was interested in, which had to do with being in exile. I didn't really want to be there with thousands of people, which thousands of people will go on the feast days. But the actual worship itself was so reminiscent of my childhood because it was so small. When the church I grew up was pretty small, very local. You know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody sits in the same place. I could tell just by the way people came in and took their seats. But it was also very intimate. And so for me, it was a, a pretty moving it was almost like being there in memory. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Marie Lore. She's an author and theologian, and she's the leader of writing groups. She has two master's degrees in theology, one from Episcopal Divinity School and the second an advanced degree from Boston University School of Theology. Today we're talking about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. It's our goal to bring you every week conversations about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Marie Laura. She's an author and theologian and the leader of writing groups. She's earned two master's degrees in theology, one from Episcopal Divinity School and the second, an advanced degree from Boston University School of Theology. We're talking today about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. Well, we've been sort of setting the stage. We talked about you as a pilgrim going to visit this cathedral where Julian of Norwich spent a significant portion of her life and did her writings. And we've talked about Julian of Norwich herself. But now let's turn the conversation to you, because you are describing your own self in the title of your book as an anchoress in St. Augustine. And and this notion of exile is there. So for my listeners who may be wondering why you chose that sort of descriptor, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that has to be explained, doesn't it? So I live in St. Augustine, Florida, which is a very lovely place to live. And this has not been my home for very long, probably five or six years at this point, full time. And many things have happened for me in this space. And one of the things that's been a big part of my time here has been this small screened in area that looks out over the San Sebastian River and the marsh and the bird life is just fantastic. And that's my favorite tree that stands guard there for me all the time. And I spend a lot of time there. And as I spent more and more time there, I thought, gee, I could really give up the rest of this house and just live in this little space. And I meant it when I would say, it's okay with me if we don't want to live in a big place. I can live in this little space. But it wasn't that simple, really. It occurred to me that there was something special and sacred about that space for me. Other people will comment on that, too. Once they've been to my house and come over that threshold, they'll say, wow, this is just really special. And it is. And so spaces really, you know, take on some kind of meaning like that, but also that crossing over the threshold and going from one kind of space into that liminal space, all of that fit together in that way for me in the, in the Lanai, which is a fancy word that Floridians picked up from Hawaii that just means really screened enclosure, screened porch. But it's the enclosure as the protection from the outside world that strikes me about this place and that that enclosure 
is important to spiritual life because without it, the whole world is always on your doorstep. And I feel like this is a way to separate that life from the interior life. And that matters to me, not just as a writer, but the way I'm trying, attempting to live my life at this point. So I had known about Julian of Norwich from my studies in graduate school and was introduced to her, her writings. And she stayed with me, but I didn't have time to really pursue it at that time. So for some reason, I started to revisit her books. And the more I did so, the more I realized she also had a little space like me, or I had a little space like her, whichever way you want to look at it. And I thought more and more about that. And what would it have actually been like to be in that anchorage? And as I was writing my story, I knew I just had to go see this anchorage. And so one thing led to another. And it wasn't because I thought I would actually become an anchorist, because I don't think we can do that anymore. But I wondered about the parallels between having a space that's really a spiritual, sacred place for yourself and giving up your entire life to do that. And I just needed to know what that would actually not only look like, but maybe feel like. Well, and... This is my impression of what I garnered from your book, Return from Exile, is that once you had made this pilgrimage, once you had seen that space where Julian of Norwich had spent those years, it almost seemed to me like you made the decision that, no, the life of an anchor is not what you're being called to. That was not for you. But these are my words, not yours. I'd love to hear how you are thinking about those moments of journey and decision. That is exactly what happened. So it's not that I went with the intention of figuring out how to become an anchoress, but I needed to know more about what that experience might have been like for somebody who had done it. And I wanted to see the physical space, but the physical space, and I'm not claustrophobic at all, but the physical space felt claustrophobic to me. And it also put me in this place for a very brief amount of time where I felt like I confronted my own mortality. So I sat for a while. It was a Friday afternoon. I can remember it clearly. And I was alone completely. And I felt it. And I also felt like nobody knows where I am right now. Not a single person. And a lot of people knew I was in England, but nobody knew right at that moment where I was, sitting alone in that language. And that would have been, I think, what it would have felt like to be an actress. Nobody really knows. They all knew she was there, but I'm sure as they're going about daily life, they're not really thinking about her. And that struck me as a vivid experience with your own mortality. And I felt that. And it was pretty scary. And I don't mean I freaked out or anything, but I remember looking to see where the exit was and being really grateful that there was an exit. And the other thing that was happening for me in that space was I was reading those words over again, over and over again, thou art enough for me, realizing that Julian had said that in her own words to God, and I didn't feel like I could actually say that sitting there because I realized, well, I love these people and I like this and I, and that didn't really ring true for me. And that really bothered me. So 
I took that home with me and I didn't know exactly what would come of that. But I don't want to spoil the, the book for anybody, but there was a moment where I realized those words, just like in any serendipity, can be looked at the other way. And those words, thou art enough for me, were meant for me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Marie Lore. She's an author and theologian, and we're talking about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchorist in St. Augustine. So I want to linger here for a moment because you talk about that confrontation with mortality, and you say it's mortality with a capital M. And it strikes me that in our conversation about Julian of Norwich, when she was walled off in the anchorage, they literally said last rites for her. They treated her as if she was dead. She, in other words, had finished all of her business with the earthly world. And what I take from that moment where you confronted capital M mortality in her little anchorage there, you came to the conclusion that you had not finished your business with the world. You had unfinished business and unfinished business, especially in your relationships. And I, like you, don't want to give away all of the pieces of the book, but I'd love to linger on the revelation, the the wisdom of realizing that you have unfinished business and that there's still work to do and having new energy to go back into that work of relationships with new vision. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I think the the word that comes to mind is freeing. It was freeing. And to know that I could get up and walk out of that place and go home was exactly what I needed at that moment to understand my own situation that I felt I was in, which was, in my own mind, a quasi-exile where I lived. And so I felt very much like I had options that she didn't have anymore by choice, and that I was glad that I did. And I was also, I felt so connected to her at that point as a woman, because that was a huge sacrifice that she made. I mean, she was young, she was 50. I know that's not young for everybody's mind, but for my mind, it is when she decided to become an anchoress. And that meant she gave up a lot, and she gave up everything. And I knew for me that I wasn't ready to do that, nor should I. And that my life was not meant to be lived that way. And also that her story was much more powerful to me because of that, if that makes sense. It it does. And you said a moment ago that you felt connected to her as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear more about what you are thinking when you say that, because it could go in many different directions. How are you interpreting that statement, that you are connected with her as a woman in that particular moment? Yeah, she's no different from any other woman, really, except that we know her as so different now. And everybody has a name for her, Mother Julian, Lady Julian, Dame Julian. And she's become that person. But when she lived there alone with her cat, it said, she was no different than me or any other woman that I know. And she had to wrestle with the same kinds of things. And she had faith, for sure. But she also had to have those moments where she felt incredibly lonely and alone in the world. And so she's a real person to me. She's really become not a figure, but a woman who once walked around like I do and like you do. 
When I speak to students and I'm talking about spirituality, one of the questions that comes up sometimes is the question of saints and saintly people, holy people, and how they experience life differently than the way that we experience life. And what I'm hearing in your answer, and I may be incorrect about this, is that your sense is that Julian did not experience life differently than we experience life. She may have had a little bit more attention to the serendipity of life and to the mystic side of life, but that there was nothing in her life that was vastly different that allowed her to do this, that she had a life that was similar to the life that every woman has lived on the planet. Now, again, these are my words, not yours. Am I hearing that correctly, or would you say that in a different way? Well, I would tweak it a little bit. I think that she, as far as we know, lived as part of the village for most of her life. I mean, until she was 50. And and back in the day, that was a pretty long life. We think she lived into her 70s. Back then, that was unusual. People didn't live very long, and especially during a plague that had four at least four waves, consecutive waves. But her experiences of her everyday life aren't really, I don't think they're what make her who she is. I think what make her who she is is that she had these revelations on her deathbed. And I think that the the fact that she wanted to wrestle with that for the rest of her days, to understand it, and to then share it, that was the biggest reason that she wrote, was to share it with what she called her even Christians. That's the rest of us. And that's an old term, but she means us, the regular people out there. She didn't see herself as a saint. And I don't see her in the saintly way. I think she had a huge experience that affected her entire life going forward. And she did something with that. But her humanity is very much there. And so I don't really even think of saints as all that different from you or me. I think they've done things that are uniquely powerful to the time that they live or people that they live that we remember them. This is one of the things that I found so beautiful and so moving about your book, Return from Exile, is that this is not a book about, so the metaphor of the Matterhorn and the top of a mountain kind of plays in and journeys up the Matterhorn play in at various ways throughout your book. But this is not a mountaintop book in that sense. My reading of it is you are living life like we all live life with frustrations and relationships that are not working the way that you wish that they would and disconnections and missed flights. But along the way, as you're talking to us about these very everyday things, you are also pointing out the moments of what you called earlier those thin veil places, those places where something is peeking through. And to me, that dance of this is every day, but the mystic is right there through the thin veil was so powerful for me in your book. And I'm wondering how you are continuing to experience thin veil places. As you've gone through this experience that you describe in your book, Return from Exile, what are you seeing differently about the world now? That is a fantastic question. I would say the the experience of sitting in the anchorage, but not just that, of writing the book, sharing the book with others, and living in that space and place for quite a while now has altered my view of everything. And what I mean by that is, yeah, there's a whole world going on out there. And Fortunately, in many ways, I don't have to participate as much as I used to when I was a younger person and had to do all those many things that were expected. I get to choose a little bit more, which I'm happy about at this point. But 
I also think that it's a coming home, if I can say it that way, which is to say for me that I'm really glad that I can see the thin veil move from time to time. And I don't feel like I have to sit somewhere to wait for that to happen. But my consciousness is really heightened in that way. I'd say my spiritual consciousness is really heightened in that way. That it's not that I'm so surprised by it anymore. I still, I'm awed by it and I love it when it happens. But there are many times when I can say to myself, if I just wait a little bit longer, this is going to open up and I will see what I need to see and trust that will be true. And I love being able to live like that. So it occurs to me as we're coming to the close of our conversation that you work with a group of writers. They're called the River Writers. And it strikes me in what you just said that in your own life and in your own journey, being more and more awakened to those moments, it's how one goes about the process of writing. You show up and there's a blank page and between you and the effort with the page, the two of you discover something together and maybe there's something divine in that moment as well. It occurs to me that my listeners may be at various places along their own journey and it strikes me that you have had moments of encouraging others to wake up and pay attention in various ways in this writing group. If you could have one or two pieces of wisdom to leave us with for my listeners about if they're in a moment where they're like, I wish I could do that more deeply, what are one or two ways that they could begin a practice of waking up and paying attention? Yeah, I wish we all could do it more deeply. I think we just don't give the attention, and I don't mean attention, paying attention. We don't put it on the top of the priority list. And that's a very hard thing to do because we have this culture that's just not letting us fit that in really comfortably. And it's not practical. And so the whole thing about having to carve out some time some spaces, some places. So for me, I've described my sacred place here within my home. It can be any place. At one point in the story, I talk about when I had a garden and I didn't have a lanai, that the garden was that for me. And so there are places like that in our lives that we can put our own boundaries around and call sacred for ourselves and protect that and spend as much time as possible within that if you have that kind of luxury. And I know it's a luxury, believe me, I haven't always lived in this space. It's really something that takes a long time to get to, I think. Well, Marie-Laure, it is often the case, because I read a lot of books, that I'll encounter a book that teaches me something I didn't know about the world. And on a more rare occasion, I will encounter a book that teaches me something about myself that I didn't know. It's rare that I encounter a book that teaches me, at the same time, things I didn't know about the world and things I didn't know about myself. It's a beautiful moment when that happens, and your book, Return from Exile, was really that for me. I know that my listeners are going to love it. It's going to be a profit for anyone who who reads the this book. I'm so thankful that you took the time to write the book. I'm also especially thankful that you took the time today to talk to us about it. I couldn't thank you enough, David. And those are the kindest words anybody could have ever said. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart.
We've been speaking today with Marie Lohr. She's an author and leader of writing groups. She's earned two master's degrees in theology, one from the Episcopal Divinity School and the second, an advanced degree from Boston University School of Theology. She currently facilitates small writing groups focused on creating spiritual autobiographies through Osher for Lifelong Learning at the University of North Florida and the University of Southern Maine. Today, we've been talking about her most recent book, Return from Exile, Revelations from an Anchoress in St. Augustine. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.